Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 9. That's where we are going to be this morning. Um, I do want to clarify something that I said uh, last week. Um, Yes, the church gathers on Sundays because of the resurrection. Um, That has set the new calendar for God's people. Um, That's when he rose from the dead. So therefore, that is when we um, we celebrate his resurrection. So we, we consider every Sunday um, resurrection um, day. But I wanted to say, I didn't, I didn't want to make it sound like it was in a way, um, and this is what stuck with me this week, is I didn't want it to make it sound like that it's not okay to say Happy Easter, okay? Because it is. Now, I, I, know, um, I, I know the, the historical... Uh, references, and I know about the fertility goddess behind it all. I, I know all that. But to our culture, they have no clue what that means. So when, if you have neighbors and friends and family, like I have had this week, people that I've met at the gym who have told me Happy Easter, I say Happy Easter to them. But to you, I say Happy Resurrection Day. So brothers and sisters, Happy Resurrection Day this, this Sunday. Um, it would seem that being uh, Easter Sunday that we should be turning to the end of Luke, maybe Luke chapter 24, or maybe to 1 Corinthians 15, where we can find um, Paul's detailed apologetic on the validity and truthfulness and necessity and historicity and truthfulness of uh, the resurrection of Christ, and to which I encourage you to read that today. Uh, spend some time on that today with your family read. Uh, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't read um, a better 58 verses today than, than um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But this week, our passage in Luke chapter 9 is very helpful for us to see Christ clearly, His identity, and the purpose of His incarnation. And when we see His identity, and we see who he is, and in this passage, as we see him in a glorified state, it will help build certainty and joy, which I believe is the intention of Luke this morning in this passage. So if you see in your Bibles the subtitle, the, the, the transfiguration, be assured, be assured that the resurrection and the cross are clearly in mind in this passage. And I'm looking forward to sharing with you that this morning and showing you that this morning. So the big question that we have been addressing throughout Luke chapter 9 has been actually introduced to us through Luke by the wicked King Herod and asking the question, who is this? Who is Jesus? And then later on that question was asked to Peter, or to the disciples by Jesus himself, who do you say that I am? And Peter rightly confessed, you are the Christ the Son of God. And Jesus, without holding back, says, that's right. That is exactly who I am. You got it right. And what's amazing about our passage today, going along with that theme, is that there is someone else who is going to claim the identity of Christ again for us. But the plan for the Messiah was that he was going to be He was going to suffer. He was going to be rejected, rejected by the leaders. He was going to die, and he was going to be raised again on the third day. Last week, we saw the the shocking call 
of what it means to follow Jesus, what discipleship looks like, to deny yourself, to take up your cross daily and follow Him. It's a self-denial, cross-bearing life of enduring suffering for Christ's sake. And what we said last week, that in taking up our cross and following Him means that we will trust in a sovereign God, in a sovereign God, for the afflictions that we face in this fallen world, that we will trust in these things, that this is the plan that he has for us, and we will trust in him for those. Hard times are coming. Hard times were coming for the disciples. Hard times are coming for us. They're always there. We're always walking in the midst of some form or fashion of, 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 uh, uh, in, uh, suffering. Difficulty will come. But this morning, as we look at our passage, and we see the glorified Christ, the transfigured Christ, we get to see an unparalleled glory. An unparalleled glory. So that when we face those trials, when we face those difficulties, when we face the question, am I going to deny myself this indulgence, or am I going to deny myself this thing that's going to keep me from Jesus Christ, we can look at the transfigured Christ and the glory of Christ and the cross, and the glory of Christ and the resurrection, and we can say it is worth it. So let's look at our passage now in Luke chapter 9, and let's start reading in verse 28 together this morning. Verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Amen. May the Lord, by His Holy Spirit, move in our hearts this morning to hear and see His holy, inspired, and inerrant Word to His glory and for our joy. As we get started this morning in unpacking this passage, I want you to notice a few things before we really dive in, first thing I want you to notice who Jesus takes up to the mountain with him. This time it is only three of his disciples, not the twelve. Peter, James, and John. All three of these guys, we know, 
have a sizable impact in the future. Sizable impact of spreading the gospel throughout the known world. Peter being the first one to confess Christ. Peter who will be faced with the temptation to deny Jesus coming up. John being the beloved disciple faces persecution after persecution in his life. James, the brother of John, the first disciple to face martyrdom. Acts chapter 12, in a brief line, says Herod kills James. I think the reason why Jesus brought these three men to the mountain is because these three men decisively needed to see Jesus in his glory. Number two, they went out to the mountain to pray. Red flag for us who've been walking through Luke. Right? When, when Jesus goes out to pray in Luke, we know something big is about to happen. And from reading this passage, we can see that something remarkable happens. Something unbelievable happens. Third, notice what the disciples were doing when Jesus was praying. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? I mean, not, not just the disciples who were sleeping in the garden. Because I, mean, I, mean, I mean us. <laughs> Fighting drowsiness and sleep. Fourth, I want you to notice how the Scripture describes Jesus when He changes. When He transfigures His appearance is completely changed. He has this human form still about him, but he's not human at all. In a sense, right? His clothes become dazzling white. And it's not just the the white that we now can wear because it's Easter. Right? You guys know that code of of, of looking clothes-wise, you can now wear white. Not that kind of white. The, the Greek actually has the, the connotation that it is like an, uh, an apocalyptic white, a blinding white light. Matthew's Gospel tells us that Jesus' face shone like the sun. He was transfigured. He was transfigured because for a brief moment, the veil of His humanity was lifted and his true essence was allowed to shine through. He showed his glory of who he is. Not a projected glory. Not the radiated glory that Moses had when he came down from Mount Sinai, but a glory that was in the essence of who he is as the Son of God. And it came out. And lastly, I want you to take notice of the two, now, for us in chapter 9 of Luke, two very familiar characters, right? Two very familiar, isn't that amazing that the, the guys who, who everyone thinks Jesus is shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, so clearly he's not one of those two guys. Moses and Elijah. When you consider the whole Old Testament, the prophets, the judges, the kings, can you think of anyone greater than these two? I mean, maybe David, 
I mean, maybe, maybe David can come to that, to that line, great king. In fact, Jesus is called the son of David at times. But he doesn't represent what these two guys represent. Moses represents the entirety of, of the whole law and is the lawgiver in which God used to give the law to his people. And there's Elijah, who was the greatest and the most powerful of all the prophets who represented God. Represented God in calling his people back to the, to the king. I was reading this morning about Elijah when he was on Mount Carmel or caramel, however you want to say it. Caramel, caramel. And as great as those guys were, as awesome as they were, and as significant as they were, what's being pointed out to us this morning in this passage is not their greatness, but the greatness and the glory that will far surpass them in all eternity, and that is Jesus Christ. The Mount of Transfiguration is the glory of Christ on full display, and that is what we are meant to see this morning. So to do so, for us to see that glory, to see that He is worthy, if we're ever going to follow Him, we have to see Him as as glorious and good. I want to show you three things about the glory of Christ and Easter morning from this different mountain, from this mountain, that would draw us closer to delight in his glory. The first of those, the first of those is I want to show you and, and I want you to see the new Exodus. The new Exodus. And that sounds kind of random. These points will sound kind of random as we dive in. The new Exodus. I don't know if they do this anymore. Um, and, I, and of course I didn't even I didn't even check last night. Um, but when I was a kid, like I'm speaking of it was a long time ago. Um, but they used to play on, um, on television uh, the Ten Commandments with Charleston Heston. Did they have it last night? Okay. Um, and and I, as a kid, I loved that movie. That was kind of like a tradition. You know, you'd color eggs and you'd watch God kill Egyptians. Um, that was just kind of the thing. And you would spend all ten hours watching it, uh, you know, just really uh, in, enjoying it. As a kid, I loved watching the, the bad guys, you know, get what's coming to them and and, and, and watching God take, take a nobody, in a sense. Moses, who was completely humbled, became a nobody. And God taking this guy and, and, and using him to bring down the, the most powerful uh, nation in, in, in the world at that time, to bring them to their uh, knees. And, and, and as a kid, I, I mean, I'm over there coloring Easter eggs, and I knew we were going to church the next morning, and I'm thinking about Jesus and his resurrection. And as a kid, I couldn't figure out, why are they playing this movie about you know, him as God, you know, clearly Christianity, God thing, God killing Egyptians and, and, and God delivering his people when, when really we're celebrating Easter tomorrow. That's the resurrection of Jesus. I couldn't, I couldn't make the connection uh, between the two uh, as a kid. And later on, eventually, it started to come to me that that, it, that was the Jewish Passover, right? They were celebrating uh, um, the, the Jewish uh, uh, Passover. But see, the Exodus was pointing to something else. It was pointing to something uh, greater. Yes, it was the Exodus that we see in, in the Scriptures from the book of Exodus um, uh, was the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian slavery. And it wasn't just to, to make a, a, a good movie, um, but it, it was a, a huge signpost in history. 
Just a huge signpost in history that not only delivered God's people and fulfilling His promise, but also pointing, and, uh, pointing forward and showing us the character of God and His loving plan that He is going to re- bring a redemptive uh, 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 point in history where He's going to redeem all of His people. And not just all of His people from human slavery, but all of His people from a greater enemy. So there would be a greater exodus that would dwarf the exodus that day. Another exodus, a bigger exodus, a newer and greater exodus. And believe it or not, it's right here in this passage. Look at verse 31. There's a very unique word described for us by the exodus. To see the exodus, and it's not the presence of Moses that tips us off. And the conversation that they are having, I mean, you imagine that conversation. In the conversation that they are, they are having, it says, of his departure, right? They were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. The, the, the Greek word used here for departure is actually exodon. What does that sound like? Exodus. And it's the exact same word that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses for exodus. They're speaking of the exodus on which Jesus was about to accomplish in Jerusalem, that decisive moment on the cross. Now, the the exodus from Egypt in the Old Testament is massively significant. We can't downplay its importance and its foundational event for the nation of Israel. It's what they, they look to for everything. Right Back to that point. Egypt was like this first superpower They had the mightiest of armies. They had a massive amount of resources. And one of those resources was the slaves of God's people. And when God's people was enslaved to to Egypt, they lost almost all sense of their identity for 400 years. They didn't know who they were. They didn't know who they were as a people. And then God sent his, his deliverer, Moses, and he brought upon Egypt the, the, the ten plagues that, that just brought them to their knees. So now there's Moses with Jesus. Now let me tell you, they were not talking about Egypt and Israel's exodus. They weren't. Jesus wasn't asking Moses, man, tell me that great story again. Tell me what happened. Tell me of all those cool things that happened. You mean the sea was pardoned? No. They were talking about what Jesus was going to do. They were talking about the glorious work of the cross and what God would do His greatest work of all. The work of the Son of God bearing the sins of the world and completely finishing the work that the law could not accomplish. Everything was won at the cross. Death was conquered. The purpose of the Messiah coming is now being revealed. Because, like Moses, Jesus had come to lead his people from slavery to sin and death, who was a master of all of us. And through his death and resurrection and ascension, the greater Moses will lead God's people in a greater exodus to be free from a greater bondage that none of us could free ourselves from. And he has not just created a nation. 
Moses created a nation. Jesus has made a people. Jesus has made a, a people who is now transformed and united in him. A people not from one nation, but a people from all nations. All accomplished at the cross. Now, just before Moses um, led Israel uh, out of Egypt, and as the, the tenth plague was about to descend upon uh, Egypt, which was the killing of all the firstborn children who was not covered by the blood of the spotless lamb on their doorpost. They celebrated and took part on that first, that night, the first Passover meal. And that meal it was, is completely symbolic of the God's deliverance that evening of God's judgment passing over the land and passing over those who were covered by the blood of the Lamb. And after that first meal that they had, God commands them to, to observe that meal every single year, to always remember what God has done for His people in delivering His people from slavery. But now as Christians, we do not look back to the Passover. We don't look back to that exodus. What do we look back to? We remember the new exodus that is accomplished by the death and the resurrection of, of Jesus so that we would be frequently reminded of our salvation and what He has accomplished. And furthermore, we don't look back just one day of a year. But we celebrate this resurrection every week, every day. And in this new exodus, we are to remember brothers and sisters, that we too were like Israelites, but to, we were slaves. But we were in bondage to a master which we could not free ourselves. But we have now been led out of slavery by the Son, by the Son of God. We are to remember that we have now been brought into God's family. We haven't been just set free and set out on our own, but we have been brought into something. We've been brought into God's family, being made His new people. And we're made His new people because He loves us. We've been brought into His family because He loves us. We remember the exodus and this new exodus that was accomplished at the cross and sealed for us in the resurrection because we are deeply loved. Brothers and sisters, there is no greater objective evidence that God loves you than what we have seen in the cross. Not the exodus out of Egypt, but in the cross. So first and foremost, we see a new exodus accomplished by Christ. The glory of Christ shown in this new exodus. Secondly, I want you to see the glory of Christ as a new tent. Weird point. We're not going camping. In verse 33, it looks like Peter is saying something pretty Foolish, right? He's waking up from his, his slumbering stupor. And he, and he replies in verse 33, Let me make three tents. You know, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. It's good for us to 
to, to be here. We don't really know Peter's motivation behind this. You know, maybe he just wants them to stay around a little bit longer. Maybe he's trying to divert them away from them being so sleepy. I don't know. We really don't know. And I don't think Peter really knew what he was saying either. That's what, that, that's what verse 33 says. He didn't really know what he was saying. But he was saying something pretty profound for us. When he was asking to make three tents. In Exodus 40, let me show you what that means. In Exodus 40, the book this time, not the new Exodus, Moses had just finished and the people have just finished building and putting together the, the tabernacle, the tent, is what they, they would call it. And this, this tent was, was meticulously and perfectly designed. In fact, God's Holy Spirit even indwelled within some of the craftsmen in the building, in the, in the, the putting together of this tent. And in that tent, was where God would meet His people. Where God would show this is His presence with His people. In verse 34 of Exodus 40, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So this cloud is the visible glory that descended upon this tabernacle, this, this tent, which was a symbolic idea or reference or a physical manifestation, whatever you want to say. It was to remind them that as they went through the wilderness, God was with His people. There would be a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The same cloud and the same fire that led them out of Egypt and across the Red Sea. God was showing that He was dwelling with His people. Now later on in Israel's history, and as they got settled into the Promised Land, that meeting place changed from no longer a tent into a temple. Solomon, David's son, built the temple for the Lord. And when the Lord, and when he dedicated unto the Lord, the exact same thing happened. The Lord's glory covered and filled the temple. And once again, was the significance of God's presence with his people. Now, sadly, throughout Israel's history, we can see that there is a constant rejection of God even Solomon. There's a constant rejection of, of God where, where the temple then was used to glorify themselves rather than God. And when you look to Ezekiel chapter 10, you'll see it says there that the glory of the Lord, the presence of God, the glory of the Lord has left Israel. And for 600 years, for, for 600 years, the glory of the Lord has left Israel. And even though the temple was destroyed and rebuilt again and again, and even though there was godly men and women throughout Israel's history and throughout those 600, or throughout those 600 years, the glory of the Lord was not seen in Israel until 
until Luke chapter 9. When the glory of God shows up. Peter may not have known what he was asking. But there is something big happening here. You see, the glory of God no longer dwells in tents and tabernacles and in temples or churches that are built by man. The glory of God is seen in the face of His Son. The same glory that engulfed the tabernacle the same glory that, that filled the temple that has been gone for centuries has now descended again in the person of Jesus Christ. And when His glory overshadowed them on the mountain, do you see what happened there? The disciples became terrified by that spectacular glory. Now, in my random squirrel mind, I thought to myself, Moses must have been chuckling a little bit there. Know the feeling, guys. I've been on the mountain with, with God before. Here's the point. Jesus is the new and better tent. He is the dwelling place of God. And He has come and He has dwelt among us. God dwells with His people. This is why John said in, in his Gospel, in John chapter 1, remember, He was there. That day. And he said this in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word of God, speaking of Christ, became flesh and He dwelt among us. It's the same word. He tented. He tabernacled with us. He dwelt among us. He came and His presence has been with us. And what does it continue to say? And we have seen His glory. The glory as the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus is the glory of God. And He is full of grace and truth. We cannot separate those points. In His glory, He has given us grace. In His glory, He has shown us the truth. In His glory, He is the truth. On the night that Jesus was about to die, or the night before Jesus was about to die, he even prayed in John 17, verse 17, 5. He said, and now, Father, he said, glorify me. Glorify me in your own presence with what? With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus did not earn that glory. It was his to claim. It was his glory. And God glorified Him on the cross that day. He is the glory of God that we look to. All the glory of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. When Moses sees Jesus, when Elijah sees Jesus, man, their worlds click. Yes, I see it now. Completely. He is the cloud of the glory of God. When you want to seek the glory of God, seek it in Jesus Christ. He is our glory. He is the glory that we boast in. It is a glory that is not fading. It is not a glory that is wasting away like former tents and temples. It is, those glories are wasting away. But the glory of Christ is everlasting and forevermore. 
And I love how this glory has come in grace and truth. Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Death on a cross. Can you imagine the glory of God? The glory of God dying on the cross that day. Humbling himself, becoming obedient to the point of death and dying a death that we all righteous deserve. Justly deserve. But there is a wonderful promise for us. For those who are in Christ, there's a wonderful promise for us in that cloud of glory. In that cloud of glory, there is a prophetic sign that points forward beyond the cross now. Even beyond us, in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, Paul says this, he says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet Him in the air, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. In the resurrection and the cross, we do not just look back, but brothers and sisters, there is a promise that keeps us looking forward. The Lord is coming back on His cloud of glory. And those who have died before us, they are going to rise and they are going to meet Him in the air. And those who are living are going to meet Him in the air too in that great cloud of glory. And we will be caught up with them in that great cloud, that Shekinah tabernacle, templed, tented glory. The glory of that tent that covered over Peter and James and John that they were terrified in. We will be caught up in that glory, but we will no longer be terrified because we have been forgiven by the righteous Lamb. The resurrection points us that Jesus is not only surely alive, but that He is coming back. He is our new tent who has come and dwelt among us. The glory of God. And lastly, third point, we see a new command. And really it's not a new command. It's not a not-so-new command there. We see God the Father. When the glory of God descends upon that mountain, overshadows them, covers them, we hear a voice. And this time it's not a voice of a groggy, sleepy, uninformed Peter. But we hear the voice of God. God the Father. Oh, you see the Trinity here. He says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The same voice we heard at the baptism when the skies opened up and the Spirit descended like a dove. Moses is a pretty great servant of the Lord. Elijah was a great prophet and a good servant of the Lord. But the father looks upon the son and says, that's my son. He didn't say it to Moses. He didn't say it to Elijah. But he looks at Jesus and he says, he is my son. As a parent, I can totally relate to this. I can delight and I can share in the gifts and the talents and the, the, the blessing of, of other children. But when I see my girls, I can say that is mine. They are mine. That is mine. They are my girls. J.C. Ryle 
said it like this to that moment. He said, Moses and Elijah were the planets, but Jesus is the sun. They were only witnesses, but Jesus is the truth. Because he is the sun, the chosen one. Literally the anointed one again. Some translations even say the beloved. And the Father then takes that truth, the truth that he is the Son of God, the glorified Son of God, and he applies it for us and says, to what? Listen to him. Sounds simple. I mean, really cut and dry. Listen to him. I mean, there's just no... There's no, no way we can de- deny the, the very uh, objective truth there, the objective command. Listen to them. Hebrews 1. I love the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 4 says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through, by the prophets, Moses, Elijah. But in these days... He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. We read the preexistence and the preeminence of Christ this morning in Colossians chapter 1, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Verse 3, listen to this. He is the radiance of the glory of God. This is what we saw in the tent. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the power of His Word. And after making purification for sins, this is the cross, He sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become much more superior than the angels, and as having the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. God does not speak through Jesus, in the same way that he spoke through Moses and Elijah. Because Jesus is the Word of God. Because he is the presence of God here on earth. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the revelation of God. And if he is the Word of God himself incarnate, the command that God gives us, listen to him, makes absolute sense, doesn't it? This isn't an authority that has been given to him. It's an authority that is his. And so when God tells us that we, can, we are to listen to him, brothers and sisters, that means we can have confidence that everything God wants to say to you and to me has been wrapped up completely in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, we live in a pretty wacky world. A confusing world where wherever we turn, there are opinions that are offered to us as gospel truth. We are offered a never-ending selections of things that we're supposed to value, that we're supposed to hold up and treasure and listen to. In this world, how are we to decide what's right and wrong? How do we decide what's true and what's false, what's good and evil? Here, God tells us, Listen to Jesus. We're not to trust social media, Fox News, CNN, the newest guru peddling a book. Don't even listen to your feelings and your own impulses. But instead, 
we deny ourselves, we take up our cross, and we listen to Jesus. We listen to God's Son, God's chosen one. It's hard to imagine that the Jesus we see here on the Mount of Transfiguration is the same Jesus that we see suffering and dying for us on the cross. The transfigured, dazzling white Jesus here on the mountain is the same as the disfigured, broken body on the cross. Here, his his clothes are dazzling white in in splendor and glory. But at the crucifixion, Jesus' clothes will be soaked in blood and will be divided among wicked men. On this mountain, Jesus is surrounded by Moses and Elijah, giants among men. But on the cross, Jesus was hung between two criminals. Here in chapter 9 of Luke, Jesus is engulfed by the glorious presence of God the Father and the glory of God. But on the cross, he would only be surrounded by absolute darkness. On on the mountaintop here in Luke 9, he hears the voice of his Father expressing love and delight in his Son. But on the cross, when he would bear on himself the sins of the whole world, this pure and spotless Lamb will be led to the slaughter for the atonement of others. And it is at that cross where God the Father, his Father, would forsake him. All of this he has done in order to redeem and reconcile us. At the cross is the perfect display of the holiness and the love of God coming together. The transfiguration, yes, puts the glory of Christ in in complete display that we can see him as he is, as his person and who he is in his essence as the deity and the son of God. But at the cross, we will see him destroyed. but also it is at the cross where we will see humility and love as the Son of God shine brightly. Calvin said, For in the cross of Christ, as in the splendid theater, in the incomparable goodness of God, is set before us the whole world. The glory of God shines, indeed, in all creatures on high and below, but never more brightly than in the cross. If it be objected that nothing could be less glorious than Christ's death, I reply that in that death we see a boundless glory which is concealed from the ungodly. Brothers and sisters, can you see the glory of Christ at the cross? Can you see his glory and delight and boast in it today? Do you have eyes to see it? Three times we hear the Father, or we see and hear the Father endorse Jesus in Luke. We just dealt with the second time today. And the third time that God the Father endorses His Son is not in a voice, but in the resurrection. It is in the resurrection where we see the endorsement of the Son's sacrifice, confirming that His sin-bearing death has been effective for the forgiveness of sins. The transfiguration was a glorious event 
that shows us the glory of Christ and the sacrifice of Himself on the cross, completely satisfying God's wrath on, on our behalf. And the resurrection is the stamp of approval of the Son's work on the cross. So this Easter morning, is the glory of Christ big enough for you? Is, G, is, the, is the Jesus you worship big enough to overshadow everything else in your life? Is His glory great enough to overshadow you in the rest, over the rest of your life? I think this is exactly what we are to see this Easter morning. That Jesus, as He is revealed in the Scripture, is absolutely worth living for, worth dying for, and worth denying ourselves for. But is He big enough to you? If, if, if He is not, then, then it's not the Jesus that we see here in the Scripture. You're not worshiping the Jesus that we see in the Scripture. You may be asleep like the disciples are. Are you missing out? Are you missing out in, in who He is, in His person, in His work on the cross, the resurrection? There's no greater glory. There's no greater glory. He is big enough. Church, let us worship Him this morning. Let us adore Him this morning as the fullness of the glory of God that has dwelt among us, who has delivered us, who has saved us by the cross. And let's commit ourselves to listening to Him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you have accomplished your great plan and your great work through your Son. Oh, God, we are so thankful for that work. Thank you for delivering us from the slavery of sin and death. Thank you, Father, for showing us a great glory in your Son the greatest glory, your glory on display, who has come and who has dwelt among us. He has given us grace and truth. And show us this morning what it means to be obedient. Obedient and to delight in this resurrection and this Savior, delight and boast in the glory of the cross. And help us this morning, O oh God, to look to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.